this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Hannah McMullen and I'm a fourth year medical student at Columbia University in New York. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Isaac George about transcatheter mitral valve replacement. Dr. George is surgical director of the Heart Valve Center at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. He's trained in both cardiac surgery and interventional cardiology and in addition to both open and minimally invasive complex adult cardiac procedures, He specializes in transcatheter valve repair and replacement, percutaneous coronary stenting, and aortic stent grafting. Welcome, Dr. George, and thank you for speaking with us today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, and uh, I'm very excited to be able to talk about this topic. Can you describe the history of transcatheter valve procedures generally and in regard to the mitral valve specifically? We um, have a lot of experience here at Columbia. We uh, are lucky in the sense that we have been involved with the evolution of things transcatheter from the start of the transcatheter aortic valve revolution that we've had um, from 2006, 2007, from the first set of cases. Um, that's evolved from the aortic valve now into the mitral and tricuspid valve. Uh, interestingly enough, the first transcatheter mitral valve replacement was performed in 2012, and it's taken some time to get to the point where we're at, where we're able to do that consistently. In contrast, the aortic valve uh, was first performed in 2002, and uh, you know we started trials in the United States in 2007, 2008, but we got commercial approval in 2011 for the first transcatheter aortic valve. So there was a very rapid period where we had a tremendous amount of development and evolution of these devices and they became commonly reliable to the point that we could put them in routinely in high-risk patients with very good outcomes, outcomes that were as good or even better than surgery, as you, as you know from the partner trials and the, uh, the core valve high-risk trials. That really set the stage in how we do trials and evaluate new technology in valve disease. This is large-scale trials with a lot of centers um, you know, 100, and 100 plus centers that are enrolling thousands and thousands of patients randomized to a device therapy versus surgery or optimal, optimal medical therapy. That really has set the standard for how we do everything in valve disease, which is a base of very, very good clinical evidence. Based on that, we've gone from high-risk patients to intermediate-risk patients to low-risk patients in the aortic valve. And that's allowed us to take these um, patient groups and tailor their interventions and tailor their indications for what we do. And at each stage, we've had a, a process where we've evaluated as physicians, as surgeons, as cardiologists, as uh, general cardiologists, how we triage patients into getting one therapy or another. We've started that process in the mitral valve as well. What is unique about the mitral valve in terms of the development of transcatheter therapies? So the mitral valve is a lot more complex. I think it's worth stepping back and again remembering that timeline. In 2000, let's say eight, we started thinking about the mitral valve and how we're gonna do this. 2012, the first one was performed and we're still now 2021, 10 years later, and we're still now just doing 
you know, early stage cases. We're, we're just now entering into early feasibility studies or what we call pivotal trials where we compare different therapies. So we're not at a stage um, in the rapidity or growth of evolution in the mitral valve that we were in the, tri- in the aortic valve. So why is that? I think we have to, again, step back and think about the aortic valve is a very uniform structure. In contrast, the mitral valve is very ununiform or non-uniform. People's mitral valve vary in anatomy. If you think about the four components of the mitral valve, you have the leaflets, you have the chordae, you have the annulus, and you have the papillary muscles. And there's a huge amount of variation in the, um, the anatomy and how the valve functions. So it's a very complex structure. It's moving, it's dynamic, as opposed to a rigid, hard, calcified sure. aortic valve. Um, and the sizes are different. And more importantly, in, in, you know, in terms of patient outcomes, the pathology is different. The etiology of why the valves don't work are fundamentally different. Um, and there's, even within mitral valve disease, you have classes of disease, right. you know, primary, secondary. Within secondary, you have different classifications of why you have secondary disease. So it becomes much more complex, and we, we're finding that it's much more personalized. It's mm-hmm. much more etiology-specific, anatomy-specific. That's going to lend itself to a wide variety of catheter-based solutions. Can you describe the types of mitral valve interventions? When we think about what we do in open-heart surgery on the mitral valve, we have two different things that we can do. We have a mitral valve repair, and we have a mitral valve replacement. When we talk about mitral valve repair, there's you know, hundreds of elements of technique that we incorporate into doing a successful mitral valve repair. That can include an annuloplasty, cordal replacements, um, leaflet resections. When we talk about a mitral valve replacement, we fundamentally do something similar and uniform, but we're dealing with a lot of different kinds of anatomy. Sometimes there's calcium, sometimes there's not. Sometimes we have to uh, resuspend leaflets. Sometimes we um, uh, have to deal with, uh, you know, other kinds of interactions with the aorta mitral curtain or um, challenging situations to access the valve. It's much more challenging and it's much more difficult than just doing an aortic valve replacement, mm-hmm. which can be replicated over and over, and has lent itself for um, a reproducible procedure. So the mitral valve access and the anatomy make it much more difficult to just do specifically mitral valve replacement. The challenges in the anatomy can be even broken down further. We have a very long, specifically anterior leaflet that oftentimes gets in the way um, of of the outflow tract. So when we think about a a mitral valve uh, that we place surgically, we remove the anterior leaflet and that gets out of the way and that anterior leaflet won't cause any outflow tract obstruction. When we're doing a transcatheter technique, we have to think about that anterior leaflet. That's a prime component of why an uh, uh, transcatheter mitral replacement will fail. So let's begin with a patient case of a 73-year-old woman with hypertension, diabetes, long-standing mitral valve prolapse and New York Heart Association class 3 CHF that's presenting with increased dyspnea and fatigue. 
she has an echo that shows mitral valve prolapse and criteria meaning severe mitral regurgitation, which just to remind everyone listening, um, includes a vena contracta width greater than or equal to 0.7 centimeters, effective regurgitant orifice greater than 0.4 centimeters squared, regurgitant volume greater than or equal to 60 milliliters, regurgitant fraction greater than or equal to 50%, and jet area greater than 40% of left atrial area. Can you describe the other key elements in the workup of this patient and what you would be looking for in each test? So as you've, uh, as you've shown here, the echo is the prime component of how we uh, grade the severity of MR. You've listed a number of elements that suggest severe MR. Um, the first thing is the clinical history, right? Our clinical history has to support uh, moving forward in patients as a class one indication, and they have meaning they have symptoms. So that's one of the, the easiest indications for moving forward with severe MR, when you have symptoms. That's irrespective of your ejection fraction or geometry. If you have symptoms and you have severe MR, then you should get your valve fixed. So that's a good way to move forward from that end. Let's say you don't have symptoms. Then there are other indicators that suggest that you should have your valve fixed. If your ejection fraction is reduced, if you have progressive dilatation of your LV, um, those are other indications that suggest that you should have your valve fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the, in the broad scheme of how we decide how to f- fix valves, we have to figure out is a patient high risk or low risk and what is the reason that they have mitral regurgitation. The patient that you're describing here has mitral valve prolapse. So this is degenerative or what we call primary MR. Those patients by far across the board right now uh, are treated with surgery. Those patients are treated surgically and we get a good mitral valve repair that's durable that lasts a long time. There are a set of patients with degenerative MR that are high risk or prohibitive risk. Those are patients right now in the United States uh, that are, and abroad that are eligible for getting a mitroclip. That's a transcatheter mitral valve repair. Mm-hmm. Um, and a mitroclip is a very good option for patients with degenerative MR. Now let's flip this around and say this patient has secondary MR. That's a much more challenging situation. This is secondary MR due to ischemic heart disease, congestive heart failure from some other etiology, dilated cardiomyopathy. It's a situation where the annulus dilates, or you can have tethering of your uh, anterior or posterior leaflet or both. So when we think back of Carpentier classifications, we're talking about type 1 or type 3 or 3B or, or both. Um, And those are challenging situations to treat, and they're tough patients to treat because we don't have a surgical predicate to say that that's going to make you feel better by operating. So if we take data with uh, patients who have secondary MR and we operate on them, and we compare that data to patients that are optimally treated with medicines, there's no survival benefit for surgery. We've never been able to demonstrate that and uh, mainly from registry trials, not from necessarily randomized trials. But we know that this is a disease of the ventricle. The secondary player is the mitral valve. 
the primary issue is the contractility or the health of the myocardium. So in those patients, we've been doing two things. We First, we treat them with medical management, and that medical management is optimal or guideline-directed medical therapy. That includes diuretics, that includes um, renin-angiotensin inhibitors, blood pressure management, um, um, that includes neurohormonal, other forms of neurohormonal blockade, that includes uh, CRT, which is cardiac resynchronization therapy, um, such as a a BIV uh, pacemaker for patients that have a wide QRS. So there's a lot of different things on different therapies that we do as an initial first stage uh, therapy for heart failure, patients with heart failure and MR um, for secondary heart failure. And they work very well. We have a number of new heart failure drugs, uh, including Entresto, which is Secubitrol, Valsartan combination, which has been shown to improve mortality significantly and can reduce MR actually. So we do all of those things, and then we reevaluate patients once they're optimally medically managed. We optimize them, we get their weights down, and they feel better usually. Um, and if they still have MR, then we think, you know, this is a patient that we need right. to treat. Um, and this is, again, very different than the degenerative MR patient. There's only so much that a medicine is going to fix a structural problem, such as a prolapse. So we're much more apt to treat a patient with degenerative MR. Now, going back to TMVR, now, why is TMVR an option for patients with secondary MR? It's very attractive because the options for device therapy that we have for secondary MR include both edge-to-edge as well as a mitral valve replacement. Mm -hmm. Edge-to-edge is a common therapy that's approved. That's the mitroclip, and that brings two edges of a leaflet together. But oftentimes in secondary MR, the leaflets are too far apart to grab, or they may not be uh, gra- uh, approachable. The, the ventricle may be too, too sick, um, and there's concern that there may be recurrence of MR if we uh, do a clip in some patients. Um, so there's a lot of investigation as to which patients are good clip patients who have secondary MR and which patients aren't. Some patients have an opening that's too small that won't allow a clip, some patients have pathology that's all the way across, the leak is all the way across the valve, and a clip won't work because it's in multiple different places. And those patients that either have anatomy that's not good for a clip or we're concerned about recurrence, um, we think about a transcatheter mitral valve replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, in theory, it's very attractive because you've replaced all elements of the valve structure, as we talked about. You have a full structure that that isn't dependent on just leaflet capture it stabilizes the annulus it potentially if it's a successful procedure has no leakage as opposed to a mitroclip which oftentimes has some leakage as well that being said a tmvr can be much more challenging the anatomy to place a tmvr is very restrictive we've talked about the anterior leaflet there can be calcium along the annulus that prevents a tmvr from sealing um, the big challenge in the broad sense is that a TMVR has to secure in place. It has to stay into place. We don't have sutures that we're putting in, so there has to be an anchoring mechanism right. that's foolproof, and that's been hard to develop over time. So if we get back to our patient with primary MR, um, what would you discuss with them about a replacement versus a repair, and what would you evaluate to determine if the patient was high surgical risk or not? 
we would always try to do a repair. You know, we would um, look at the echo, and if we can't see the leaflets well, we would send them for a transesophageal echocardiogram. Um, those will, those kind of tests will tell us leaflet anatomy. Uh, we can get a good 3D reconstruction of the valve leaflets. That'll show us exactly where the leak is, what part of the valve isn't working. That'll help us construct a plan in the operating room of how to fix it. And again, there are many different kinds of techniques to repair a valve. A repair is always going to be um, preferable to a replacement. Mm -hmm. It's your own tissue. It's physiologic. The valve function is um, is much more uh, dynamic, and um, uh, it's it allows for a greater a greater range of flow in general. It's a larger opening. A replacement is plagued by a number of things that are common to bioprosthetic valves. Durability that's not you know, long-term. Um, mitral valves have a history of having structural valve degeneration at anywhere from 10 to 15 years. So there's a lifespan to those valves. The flows may not be, again, equivalent to a mitral valve repair. Uh, there is a potential that these valve leaflets on a, a prosthesis form calcium or a clot, and mm -hmm. some, some people prefer their valves to be anticoagulated, mm -hmm. so you have a requirement for um, anticoagulation. There's maybe a higher risk of endocarditis. So there are a lot of reasons why a repair is far preferable to a replacement. Mm -hmm. So anatomical suitability is another important consideration for the evaluation of TMVR. What are the criteria for an ideal candidate for this procedure? So a patient who is going to be a good candidate for a TMVR, first and foremost, has to have a size that's appropriate, a size of an annulus that's appropriate for the current devices. A lot of the devices that are out there right now in trials have limited device ranges. And we're not able to, with sutures, bring in an annulus that's too large. Uh, and that's a common, common theme among patients with secondary MR. Their annulus may be dilated out. And if we don't have a size to accommodate that, we can't bring it in from a transcatheter approach. So we have to have a size that's appropriate. We typically oversize the valve. The valve will be oversized slightly, somewhere between 5 to 10% to allow sealing. Sealing can be a number of different um, mechanisms uh, dependent on the device. Some devices will capture leaflets. Some devices actually passively seal by oversizing. Um, some devices act as a cork. So some devices have tines that latch on in different areas of the, of the annulus. So that sealing mechanism has to be uh, appropriate, and there can't be things that interfere with that. Yeah. One of the common things that interferes with sealing is calcium. So if you have a large, bulky piece of calcium on the mitral annulus, that may not be a good patient for a TMVR because the TMVR will have paravalvular leak. Mm -hmm. The greatest consideration is still the anterior leaflet and the risk of LVOT obstruction. Um, as we noted before, that LVOT is uh, very close to the mitral annulus. The aortic leaflet, the mitral annular, sorry, the mitral anterior leaflet is in continuity with the LVOT. And so if a TMVR is placed and the anterior leaflet goes into the LVOT, that can be a catastrophic hemodynamic issue. So there has to be appropriate room in the LVOT to accommodate a TMVR or the TMVR device has to have within the way that it works, uh, a system to manage and capture the anterior leaflet. 
So we've briefly touched on it, but let's further discuss the operative technique for a TMVR. What are the options for access and what are the benefits and risks of each approach? Right now, currently, there are two ways to perform a TMVR. The first is a transapical access. A transapical access is a left mini thoracotomy underneath usually the fourth to fifth rib uh, in, the, in the anterior axillary line. Uh, maybe a three to four inch incision is made in that inner space. The apex of the heart is palpated and identified and the pericardium is entered. A spot on the heart, which is a little bit off the apex, a little lateral um, and a little anterior is identified. That spot should correspond to a direct line to the mitral annulus or 90 degrees or orthogonal to that mitral annulus. If you come out, you'll, you'll exit the heart at that spot, ideally. And that'll give you a straight point access point to the mitral annulus. That can be identified by CT scan and planning, and there are mechanisms to do that in the operating room as well. All of these procedures are done in a hybrid room with fluoroscopy as well as TE guidance. We typically do not put these patients on bypass. Pledgets are placed around that area where you're going to enter, uh, and that's for hemostasis later. The apex is entered with a needle, and then a wire is passed through the LV into the mitral annulus. The mitral valve is crossed, and then uh, the valve is situated in the pulmonary veins. After that, the device is entered after serial dilatation of your LV apex. The device is uh, inserted into the LV, into the heart, is positioned across the mitral valve annulus in the appropriate position as determined by mainly echocardiogram, and the valve is deployed. Typically, it's deployed under levels of pacing that are anywhere from 100 to 180. There's a period where the valve will start to open and then start to obstruct the mitral valve opening, and the patient will have some hemodynamic compromise. At that point, the valve is rapidly delivered, and the system is then retracted back. The valve is assessed by echocardiography again, and then the device is removed and the sutures are tied down on the apex. Now, remember, these are not small incisions on the apex. These are, these are relatively large holes. Right now, devices are anywhere from 36 to 40 French, 30, uh, 30, you know, pretty large, 35 to 40 plus French. So we're talking about sizes that are far larger than what we used in transcatheter aortic valves. Um, and there's a, there's a reasonable risk of bleeding from the apex of a few percent at least, which can be very dangerous. Um, the current system that's in trial that, that primarily is uh, using a transapical access as its first approach is the Tendine device. It's nice, it has a tether that goes from the mitral valve through uh, out to the apex and it has a pad at the end of it. So that pad actually acts as a hemostatic pad um, uh, in, uh, anchor there that keeps the valve in place but also acts to prevent bleeding at the end after the valve is closed. It can be tightened before the valve and the apex are um, closed to provide the right level of sealing as well and positioning. There are um, other valve systems that are all fully percutaneous. There are transeptal transvenous systems that again also are, are right now large anywhere from 32 to 40 plus French. So a transeptal puncture is performed under fluoroscopy and echocardiography. 
that is the junction between the left atrium and the right atrium at the level of the fossa. The fossa uh, puncture is then dilated serially and the device, um, uh, a special catheter to um, take the wire, a stiff wire, and place it in the LV is uh, inserted. Once the wire position is confirmed, the transcatheter mitral valve device is inserted into the body from the, from the groin into the vein, up the IVC, through the heart, through the right atrium, through the left atrium, and then positioned over the mitral valve. From that positioning, once it's in place, uh, the valve is deployed, usually again under rapid pacing. Afterwards, the device, the wire, are all removed um, from the groin. The groin is closed. We also have consideration to close the, the ASD that's, uh, that's made when doing the transeptal puncture. Um, we commonly leave it open unless we have right to left shunting. Usually the shunt is left to right and patients can accommodate that. It's um, a, a size that is reasonable. However, depending on the size of the device, if it's too large, you may get bi-directional or even right to left shunting. And those are cases where we do close it. Um, right now, given the size of the devices, most of them are closed, but the downside of that is that you do potentially lose access for future interventions. Uh, can you briefly just describe again the imaging guidance that you're using intraoperatively, and uh, you can pick the approach that you would have chosen for this patient in this case? Sure. So, again, there's a number of things that we utilize. The most important thing that we utilize is transesophageal echocardiography. It's become extremely advanced. We have probes that are far, far greater than anything that we've used. It also allows us with multiplanar reconstruction to see a 3D image and then see the three-dimensional reconstruction of all the data that's collected. So we'll have four panels. Uh, on the bottom panel is the actual 3D reconstruction in real time. And then you also have all of the two-dimensional panels of all the three dimensions at once. So we can rotate around and create very, very advanced images that show us almost what we're seeing in the operating room. So we took, you know, before, back in the history of, of cardiology, it was a two-dimensional world. But now we've entered into this world in the last really three to four years, an era with multiplanar reconstruction that we can really see everything in three dimensions real time with very high fidelity. Um, so we can cone in on certain areas. We can see details we get a global sense of where relationships of anatomy are from leaflets to the heart to vessels in a very real way. And that's changed the success and the outcomes of, of every procedure that we're doing. It's, it's remarkable, it's even getting better, and it will continue to get better to a point where all of these image reconstructions will be similar to what we see. So um, can you describe the intraoperative evaluation of valve position and function once you've placed the device? Sure. So we primarily use echocardiography. Again, this 3D uh, uh, data set that we are able to see guides us and allows us to make sure that the valve is positioned on the annulus. Um, we do this usually quite slowly so that we make small fine adjustments on the back end before we release the valve. There are very few valves that are fully retrievable after we deploy it. So we have to be perfect the first time. We have to make sure it's in the right place. We have to make sure it's angled correctly. 
Many of them have orientation, so we have to actually orient the valve in the same directions or anterior posterior or septal lateral or medial lateral. Um, and all of those make a difference if the valve is going to stay in place. Um, what was this? the last question was how do we can fluoroscopically use um, uh, guidance as well. Occasionally we'll do angiograms to look at surrounding structures such as uh, the coronary sinus is oftentimes used as a surrogate for the mitral valve annulus. Um, and so we can sometimes place a wire in the coronary sinus uh, and that's a nice guide. We occasionally will do angiograms that show us an annulus in a certain plane that makes it a straight line and we can use that for guidance as well. So what would your management strategy be if you were not satisfied with the position of the valve? There's not a whole lot you can do once the valve is fully deployed. You know, you can, you can if you, it depends on the, the issue at hand. If you have leak, you can try to plug the leak. We have small plugs that are made out of, out of uh, small metal mesh that we can place on wires and put into small holes to plug a leak. Um, that's very commonly done on the aortic side, on the mitral side. Um, it's commonly done in children. Uh, they're very similar to ASD and VSD devices that are occluders, um, or, or septal occluders, or Amplatz devices, essentially. Uh, if the issue is major malposition, that could be an issue, and there's not a great way to, to fix that. Trying to manipulate that too much can precipitate an embolization or a migration of a valve, so we have to be very careful with that. If we have leaflet dysfunction, or if we have a situation where the valve is uh, not working intrinsically, we usually have the option of placing a transcatheter aortic valve inside of it and trying to fix that problem. But those are the main things, either leak or malpositioning. So then can you briefly describe the post-operative management of these patients and what complications you're most concerned for? There are a number of complications that can occur. Obviously, the first one is bleeding. Um, bleeding usually occurs either in the heart, which is relatively rare, less than 0.5%, I would say. There can be bleeding in the leg, which is very common. The access catheters are very large, as we spoke about. The vessels are veins, which may not be quite as strong, especially in older, sicker patients. Um, so there is bleeding or hematomas or bruising that can occur in the leg. Um, many of these devices require a surgical cut down, so there can be uh, lymph lymphatic drainage or lymphocytes or collections that can form postoperatively. In addition, these patients are on anticoagulation, usually after a day or two, uh, for the risk of thrombus on the leaflets. So they are at a high risk of bleeding, not only from the leg, but other kinds of bleeding, such as GI bleeding. The risk of stroke is present, although it's been relatively low in the early series, there's always a theoretical risk of stroke um, due to debris that's uh, from either systems or the heart or the valves. And finally, there is a risk of needing a pacemaker. These are all uh, high risk for needing a pacemaker due to the location near, near uh, the conduction system of the heart. The uh, pacemaker rates are anywhere from 5 to 10% in series and will continue to be an issue uh, due to the size of the devices in the heart and, again, its uh, anatomy. Mm. So then what would the expected long-term course for a patient that's undergone TMVR be? 
It's a good question. We're still trying to figure that out. I think it's going to be very good. I think it's going to be good enough, right? And what does good enough mean? It means that a high-risk patient that's undergoing an off-label procedure will get a good result. They will fix their MR, they will feel better, and they'll have a, a safe recovery. In contrast, I think we have to be careful of um, devices that aren't able to provide a reduction in MR that's good, meaning a valve doesn't a valve that doesn't perform, or has such a high complication rate that you're, you're equivalent or comparable to a high-risk operation. The advantage of a high-risk operation in a patient is that you know that the valve performance aspect is going to be, uh, you know, in general, fixed permanently. There's no, there's no question that uh, a surgical valve isn't going to work, let's say, or, you know, it's rare that you're going to have a major issue from the surgical side of it. It's the recovery aspect for most people. Whereas here, you're dealing with multiple aspects, a successful delivery, a technical success, a procedural success, and a good recovery. Mm-hmm. So you have, to, you have to be able to win on something, and hopefully you win on the recovery. And the recovery in general has been very good. People get extubated in the operating room, they get up and walk around the next day, and they go home in usually three to four days. So what do you predict for the near future in terms of TMVR and management of mitral valve disease in general? Are there any new exciting innovations on the horizon? There are a lot of new innovations. Um, TMVR, you're going to see, is going to explode. We have a number of trials that are underway for high-risk patients that will be comparing TMVR to medical therapy or TMVR to MitraClip. We're going to see in the future an evolution of two roads and the roads will diverge. One is a MitraClip and one is a TMVR. Uh, and MitraClip, I really mean edge to edge, but I think we're gonna see the benefits and disadvantages of both systems. And we're gonna have to figure out some understanding of which pathway is better for individual patients based on their physiology, their anatomy, their clinical comorbidities. And some people will do better with an edge to edge therapy. Some people will do better with a a TMVR or a replacement. We're going to find out that data from clinical trials, from registry experience, but I think that's the pathway that we're going to come to in high-risk patients at this point. At some point, we will enter into a lower-risk patient or an intermediate-risk patient, but I think that's quite far away for TMVR right now from a replacement standpoint. I think we still have to get to a point from a design that we can not have to screen out a large number of patients that we have reproducible and validated valve performance, that we can have a, a, a valve system that has durability that's acceptable, and that acceptable range really has to be somewhere between at least seven to 10 years, I would say, in a high-risk high patient. In a lower-risk patient, that may be even longer, but I think seven to 10 years as a metric is a, is a good starting point for most valve systems. Do you have any other thoughts to share about uh, TMVR or other related pathology for mitral valve disease? I think these are all growing technologies. Surprisingly, surgeons are really at the forefront of this. And um, even though it doesn't always seem that way, uh, a lot of the technologies have been developed by surgeons, perfected by surgeons. And um, the, the kind of training that we have, the kind of exposure that we have in the operating room, the ability to see anatomy is unique to cardiac surgeons. 
and I would urge everybody to continue to stay involved in the transcatheter field, even though it doesn't fit a classic definition of surgery. So as one of the few physicians in the world that's trained in both cardiac surgery and interventional cardiology, I was hoping we could spend a few moments hearing about how you got involved in both arenas and any advice for residents that may also share those interests. I was very lucky. I mean, first I will say that the experience that I had was very unique. I was able to train here at a time when transcatheter valve technology was just in its infancy and growing. Um, I had a mentor who uh, really taught me a lot, uh, Matt Williams, who's down at uh, another neighboring institution, who is a close friend of mine who really was able to do a lot of the things that I do and showed me the promise and potential of a combined approach. Uh, And that combined approach is really unique because it's unbiased and it allows you to make decisions not based on your own skill set or what you do but it allows you to make a decision based on what you think is best using the tools that you know. And those tools are very wide and they're expansive and they are not biased toward one thing or the other. So I think we're able to really provide um, an an analysis or a judgment that is best for the patient. But it requires a sacrifice. It requires a sacrifice of learning a lot of new material that's outside of the world of classic surgery it requires a understanding that um, some of our colleagues may know other things better than we do it requires some humility it requires a lot of practice and it requires um, a lot of teamwork well thank you so much for speaking with us it was really a pleasure it's been my pleasure good luck